Howdy, my name is Chris Fleming. I'm the Adult Ministries Coordinator for the Discipleship Ministry Team, and I am uh, joined here with uh, Logan Dixon, who is the pastor of the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and that's located in Arkansas Presbytery. I don't know exactly where it's at, so I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself more and tell us about himself. Russellville-ish. It's located in in kind of Russellville. Uh, actually, it's more closer to Pottsville. Um, it's it's in Pottsville, but it has a Russellville address. If that makes sense for you, postal people. <clears throat> I'm sure it makes sense for a lot of people in our Cumberland Presbyterian Church that are in the same boat. Uh, <laughs> so, um, how long have you been there? I have been there since September of last year. So I've been there r- roughly 14 months or so, and I am loving every minute of it. I love my people. They love me and we get along great. Awesome. And now Logan is in the pause program right now. And, uh, here in two weeks, TJ Malinowski has recorded his appearance on the Cumberland road. So y'all can pick that up. I think around, uh, what December 14th or 15th or so is when that'll drop. So, um, Anyway, look forward to that. Make sure you check out uh, TJ's podcast called The Cumberland Road. You can get that on most of your major podcast aggregators, I guess is the word. So what we're doing here today is that we're going to go through the December 6th lesson of the encounter. It's a way that we're trying to help the churches that can't uh, meet in person and maybe have the encounter books, but uh, haven't been able to get them to their people, or just to introduce you to the new reformatted encounter. Also, uh, so one of the one of the criticisms we've gotten is that when we switched from the United uh, or the Uniform Lesson Series, uh, people lost a lot of resources on preparing for their lesson. And so this is a way in which we're going to try to um, help out with that, help out the churches, help out people who want to study a little bit more. Uh, and I will also say Logan uh, has written for this quarter. Uh, he's written the I've written this lesson for December 6th, but the December lessons Logan has written. And so next week uh, we're going to swip flip and I'm going to kind of, uh, kind of be talking about what he wrote and all that jazz. But for today, we're going to go with Joel chapter two. Um, it's titled dreams and visions. It's a, uh, it's actually a um, passage that's most of the time uh, set for Ash Wednesday or for Lent. And so it's kind of different having it here, but it's a continuation of where we left off in the last uh, encounter lesson. It's the, um, the new covenant and, and what God is doing as he brings about this new covenant that finds its uh, fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So uh, if you will, we're going to pray this prayer for illumination and then uh, we'll get in with the study. Almighty God, fill our minds with visions of your love and power as we study today. Give us words to speak, a vision of life into all we meet. Grant us strength to our bodies that we might serve you in response to this lesson. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, from Joel chapter 2, it's a familiar passage for most people. Like I said, you hit it at Ash Wednesday a lot of times. And um, I will just uh, highlight the memory verse this week. It's actually verse 20. uh, Let's see here. Uh, 28. And so the memory verse for the week, then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. So that's where we're at. Um, so, so far as introducing the lesson, um, I came up with a T.E. Lawrence quote. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Where did you, where did you get that? 
Um, so, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, I, uh, had read that, watched the movie. He's always intrigued me. And he was a guy who, he just had a vision for life. And when he got in this, this position of, of wanting to live, uh, and he did it and, and it contrasts, as I've said in the, in the introduction, the, the biggest frustration that I've had, especially with younger folk as a pastor, when we're sitting down, things aren't going well, they're not doing well in school or, or their relationships are terrible or whatnot. I, I just almost over and over again, I said, well, like, or they're not happy. They're not fulfilled in life. They don't know what they're at. I'm like, well, what are you, what are you living for? What gives you hope? What gives you the drive? And, and they always just said, I don't know. And, and, and I've never been in that boat. Uh, my parents always pushed me to do something and I've always had a goal and I've always pushed to something. And I haven't had that existential crisis, I think, that some of our younger folks feel. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, in, in the old catechism, um, it kind of addresses that right out of the gate with the question, what is the chief end of man? Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And and part of life is us figuring out how we're going to do that. Right. And that, that, that looks like different things to different people. And so I, so as we're approaching this lesson of dreams and visions, I, I kind of have to ask the question, how do you, what, what's, what does it look like to glorify God in your life? What, what are the tangible things that you can put your hands on and say, I do this and it gives, I believe it gives joy to God and I believe it gives joy to me. Um, you know, I think um, in Chariots of Fire, you had, it was that movie about that uh, runner in the Olympics. Didn't run and, on Sundays. Right, he didn't run on Sundays. And he said, when I run, I feel the joy of God. Right. Um, so what, what makes us feel the joy of God in our lives? Uh, I learned from an early point for me, it was, um, it was seeing people succeed and do things. So, um, even when I was in uh, restaurant management, it was seeing people start as a cook and unsure of themselves and then seeing them go up and, and becoming a, a more full human. If I mean, I, I shouldn't say that, uh, not more full human, but to see their capacity grow and, and mm -hmm. their expectations of themselves grow. Uh, and so I've always been a people person that way. But to address what you um, said, I, I came up with, because of some of the ministry stuff, I came up with three questions, Chris's three deep theological questions on how to, <laughs> um, on how to, how to live each day. And, and the first one is, uh, who am I? So like every morning, I can think to myself, I'm a child of God. I have these tools that he's given me, these gifts. So that's the first one, who am I? The second one is, where am I? So where has God placed me? Uh, I have many roles, right? Dad husband, teacher, I do this job, I'm a pastor to people, but whatever situation, who am I? Where has God put me? When I answer those two questions, uh, the third question is, what can I do right now to glorify God, right? And so, um, and that's how I make a lot of decisions on what I do, <laughs> either big <laughs> questions or, or whatnot. And, and then I get specific in that sense. I'm, I'm me here, I'm right here, what can I do? And that's if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a counseling session, anything like that. And, and I think those little steps uh, keep me away from the, the unknowns of the future that can suck in other, other folks. And you just do what God's put before you. Sure. But that's, uh, that's kind of what I was going with, with that introduction. It's just, we have a, a whole mass of people that 
just don't really know who they are, what they are, where they are, where they stand. And, um, and you, you can find that. It's, it's sure. And I think there are a lot of churches like that too. You know, yes. you have churches who, you have churches that were founded, you know, a hundred years ago or somewhere along that line. And now they're, you know, they're all their youth has grown up and moved away or whatever. And they're, they're a church out in the middle of nowhere and all of their members are over 65 and they've kind of lost their vision. Right. You know, they're not, they don't really understand why they exist or what they're supposed to be doing in their existence. And a couple lessons, I think maybe it's the next quarter. I kind of think I, I talk about the same thing and that churches can, they can get off track too. And it, and it is a challenge for us to say, where does God want us now? Where is God moving now? Where is he calling us to do? And, and so that, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to address in that introduction. So it was, um, that'll lead me, I guess, to the next exploring the scripture part. So in the exploring the scripture part, we I, I do talk about, the context of, of what's happening. So the people of Israel at the time, they had experienced this great growth, right? The economic power, they had military might and so on. And what that did was they lost a true vision of God. And instead they were kind of looking through uh, the lens of, of, hey, look at us and our power and our material possessions. And it was the wrong vision of life. And they, they, started sacrificing to other gods or, or marrying the foreign women or doing all these things that, that showed that they did not care too much about the vision God had for them as a spiritual nation. And so hmm. while they were doing well, Joel gets this, this vision of locusts that come and absolutely annihilate their crops. And of course, Israel was a agrarian society. And so without crops, they had no more economic might. And so he was trying to say, look, the locusts are coming. They're going to destroy everything. Uh, what's left, right? And so then the warning is that it's crops now, but in the future, if you don't turn and you don't get this vision, this, this godly vision again and, and care for your souls, care for your orphans and your widows and, and your worship and all the things you're supposed to do, that next, that next uh, big uh, uh, calamity is going to be your nation going down, not just sure. your economics, but your nation going down. And, and so um, it, it's something that for uh, maybe us as a Christian nation, we like to think that we're, we're special in, in these ways, in which I think, you know, we've all been blessed and benefited from. But in the past four years, we've become more, Christians have become more political and they've become more reliant on what platform can do what. And, and, and if we only elect this person, then, then all of our troubles are going to be solved. And, and not so much in the last four or five years have we been military interventionist, but we've always relied on the power and strength of our, our military to, to say, this is, we're a strong nation. Uh, mm-hmm. And you always hear, you know, some religious folks in the background saying, well, that's not what makes us a strong nation. What makes us a strong nation is that we do that, do the right things where we care for the least of these. And we, in our ideas and in, in the way we conduct ourselves are righteous and, and we practice things like forgiveness or, or these kinds of things. And I think that that's a danger that we've got going on right now. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed the same thing or not. 
Oh boy, have I ever. <laughs> you know, I I cannot remember a time in history when uh, the political landscape among Christians has been so divisive as it is. You know, if you if you vote for this guy, you're not a Christian. So in order to in order to be considered a Christian, you have to vote for this other guy because this other guy is going to save our nation. He's going to save our country. And when you start when you start attributing any form of salvation, I don't just mean national salvation, but you know. Well, yeah, anytime you start attributing any form of salvation to a candidate, a party, or a platform, you're in big trouble. You've lost the uh, the main drive, yeah, because the, the power of the Christian is in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, mm-hmm. the working of the Holy Spirit, which, which is also what um, Joel is saying here. Look, uh, submit to God, and he will give you the sound pouring of the Holy Spirit, and, and, mm-hmm. and that's where your power is going to come from, and so... Um, one of the lessons that you know I I actually just wrote, so it's going to appear in the quarter after this. Um, I was talking about how there was a time in our nation when Christians seemed to have the upper hand. We seemed to have all the influence and the power. Pastors could get discounts on their suits from the clothing store, um, and uh, you know they could even get free or discounted country club memberships because everyone wanted the respect of the pastor. Now it seems like Christians are on the other side of that, and we think that it's a downgrade. We think that it's a bad thing that Christians are losing our power and our influence. But the truth is we're entering to a, to a place now where we're figuring out what real power is and where real power comes from. Real. And it's it, and it's about, you know, experiencing this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That. That is that is exactly the way I would say it if I didn't say it in the lesson. That's how I should have said it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the proclamation of the gospel. Because God can transform people uh, unlike any political means or forceful means or whatnot than, than anybody else can. And then I did want to highlight another thing on disasters. Something that you might notice on Facebook or just talking to your friends. Uh, in this context, it was locusts that uh, wiped out the, the crops and... and and a lot of times people will do one of two things. They'll jump and say, well, this is God's judgment. I remember a long time ago, Haiti had a hurricane or whatnot, uh, and it was devastating. And I remember one of the people I was around said, well, that's because they made a deal with the devil, and this is God's punishment on them. And I thought, I don't know about that. I don't think you can just just automatically ascribe uh, God's anger when an earthquake or a tsunami happens or whatnot. Um, because the same person who said that about Haiti was also uh, damaged. Their house was pretty much completely damaged by a flood, and and they didn't see the they didn't see the equivalency <laughs> there. And so, but then the other thing people do is to say, well, this has nothing to do with God. It's just the way it is. And I think scripturally speaking, you can see both. You can see that there are disasters or there's things that happen to people, and and it's not because they did something. God is disciplining them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that God's not either. There are places in Scripture in which God did allow bad things to happen for the purpose of people to get their attention and to. Yeah, there's even a place in the Book of Amos where God straight up says, "Calamity." He says something along the lines of, "Does not calamity come on a come on a city?" And I, you know, I'm in the, I'm the one who's in control of it. Right. Uh, Isaiah has a. I have a passage in there, you know, where both, you know, peace and, and destruction come from God. And, and so, you know, and you just got to be careful. I guess what I wanted to bring up there is that you, you do have to have reflection, 
right? I mean, you just have to have reflection that you don't automatically ascribe, ascribe God fault or, but you, you do have to say, well, you know, why did this happen? What, what can I learn from it? These kinds of things. Um, so anyway, um, so, but that's, that's the main thing with the, uh, exploration or the historical setting in the context. It's that God, God is warning the people don't, uh, don't be like that. <laughs> that's it. Turn, repent, those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. So moving on to digging in or digging deeper, comparing your scripture with scripture. Um, I, I found five themes that I kind of highlighted um, in these, in, in this chapter, in this chapter of the scripture selection, pericope, if you want to use that term. <laughs> uh, one of the th- themes is, is about the character of God, which we just kind of talked about. God is a, is a God who disciplines God doesn't let us get away with everything that we want to, but God has called us into a relationship to form us and shape us. Uh, and I think he does that with nations, particularly here with Israel. He was God was forming Israel into a holy nation, is what the goal was. And so things like a locust plague happens. But we also see in this passage that God is a loving God that is seeking the benefit of God's people, right? So... Um, so there's an there's a concern with with who God is. Where in Israel, some were thinking God was that entity that as long as they you know did the rituals or did whatever, God was happy. They could continue on. And then there were people, especially about the time of, of the destruction of Israel, where God was just this angry God who who was getting vengeance for for all the sins of the people. But but again, it's somewhere in between where God is creating, forming, shaping in love of people uh, to, to be a light to the world. And then the second then uh, theme that I found in here, this is the introduction of, of what's called the day of the Lord. Um, and that's a theme that goes throughout scripture. It's a, whenever you read about the day of the Lord, um, it, it could be good or bad. It could be like a locust plague, but it could also be the times when God miraculously rescues Israel from their enemies. And it's just called the day of the Lord. It's any instance in which uh, God breaks on the scene. Um, so anyway, at least in this one, it's the day of the Lord has this. Again, think about Ash Wednesday when you read this. The day of the Lord, it's, it's, a, it's a day of mourning because of the people's sin. Right. And um, if you, for those of you who are teachers watching this, if you go to YouTube and you type in Bible Project of the Day of the Lord, there's like a, a brief six minute video where they kind of break down just in real basic terms what the Day of the Lord means throughout Scripture. And whenever we think of the phrase the Day of the Lord, we we think automatically of this eschatological event, this one time eschatological event that's going to happen at the consummation of the age. And um, in there's some context in the scriptures where the day of the Lord is that, right. but there's many times, like I would say this passage throughout Joel, uh, where the day of the Lord is talking about that one event, that, that event where God's going to show up, things are going to change, and God's people are going to prosper once again. Right. And, I, and I kind of think we see and I, I'm sure you get into this in the lesson. Uh, part we see that partly fulfilled at the day of Pentecost. Yes, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. 
Um, yeah. So in the book of Joel, and especially in our our passage, the day of the Lord that we focus on this whole narrative starting in Genesis is the uh, birth of Christ. And we'll get into that. It's also the second coming of Christ. But we'll, again, we'll get into it. But yeah, the day of the Lord is, is a progressive revelation in some sense. Um, and that's how that's how it's treated in scripture. It's also how we've treated it in this uh, in this in the encounter. Uh, so then the third was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this passage. So when the Holy Spirit comes, it's a transformation of people, right? So you go from this, econo we're economically strong, we're militarily strong, and then you're transformed into thinking about things from a spiritual point of view to where we have to repent and then see things from God's point of view. Right? So that, mm. at least in Joel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, is less about power as much as it is about transformation. It's that from the last encounter lesson to where God will write the, law in your hearts and so then there's this transformation of thought and mind to where you're obedient to god from your inner being right like it's completely transform you your mind will be set on different things than just money and power and and, and convenience and whatever else we get caught up in mm -hmm. uh the fourth theme that uh is very important in the book of joel and this this shows this is one of the steps of God's redemption, redemptive plan. So in this, he, God <clears throat> speaks about all flesh having the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's this where in ancient times we were talking about just the people of Israel, maybe the, the Samaritans, right? Once you, but, but mostly the people of Israel, the, the Jews, those, those folks, they, they always thought they had this corner on God. And then here in Joel, you have this, at least thought that God is going to open up his uh, family to all people everywhere, regardless of gender, race, nationality, whatever else, no barriers because God's spirit will be poured upon all flesh. Uh, hmm. and, and that is as important today as it was uh, thousands of years ago, that, that God belongs to all people. Um, and then connected with that, the fifth theme, which again is important, is that there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all people, but it's conditional in the sense of uh, God says, for those who call upon my name, you know, repent, submit, call on my name. The Holy Spirit then is poured out upon the, the folks. And so it wasn't, it wasn't just this universal, everybody gets it, but it's to those, whether you were Jew or not, who call upon the name of the Lord. And then that's, yeah, the it's, it, it's universally available, but it's not universally applied. Right. That's one of the discussion questions. Can, is Christianity a universal religion or is it a, uh, you know, uh, a specific, is it, is it uh, limited? And, it, and of course, like you just said, I think it's both. Like it is available to absolutely anyone without cost mm -hmm. as long as, you submit to Christ uh, in the ways prescribed by Scripture, or well, you know, we we talk John three sixteen is our big passage as Cumberland Presbyterians, and we often put the emphasis on the whosoever, but we I think I think sometimes we put the emphasis on the whosoever at the exclusion of the emphasis being on the believe portion of that text. Whosoever that believeth or who believeth, uh, yeah. I think that's I think that's it, um, and and then that causes problems in society. 
but that is our confession. That's that's our thought is that everyone is encouraged, loved to come to this point to where they believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so then what I did from going to the themes there in the Old Testament, I brought it over to the New Testament with the learning of the scripture. And then I'll just briefly talk about how Jesus Christ fulfills all those themes. So Joel puts out those five themes and Jesus Christ, all, all of those are fulfilled and we can think about them in a deeper way. So for instance, the character of God is revealed in Jesus Christ from the earliest times of me uh, being a Christian. When I was 18 years old, I remember reading the story of Thomas saying, or I think I forgot Thomas, who, one of the, I think it was Thomas, the, the disciples says, show us the father. And Jesus mm-hmm. says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So like, we don't have to like guess about who God is, what, what character God is, because the gospels show us the care, the mercy, the love of Jesus Christ. And, and when you get a hold of Jesus Christ, you've got a hold of God. You, you don't have to have some philosophical thought. Jesus Christ fully reveals the character of God. In, in every way, shape, or form. We're in, you know, New Testament passages, Colossians, Christ is the exact re- representation, the image of, of the invisible God. And so um, I, I love that story. Show us God. Bam, there's Jesus. Um, then the second part, we've talked briefly about this already, the day of the Lord. Uh, of course, when Joel uh, was speaking, the day of the Lord was, was a day of terror. Uh, but in general, the day of the Lord was when God would be with humanity, ultimately. And we see that first in the Christmas event when Christ takes upon flesh, enters this world. Uh, and the shepherds and the wise men, they come and bow down. And, and we know that this is the day of the Lord, that God has entered in creation to save it. But then the next, uh, what we would call the ultimate day of the Lord, would be the final judgment. And the resurrection, you know, the resurrection and the judgment, and so. Again, well, then I think that I think there's a duality to the to the day of the Lord, where the day of the Lord brings judgment, but it also brings mercy. Like right. when 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 Jesus comes on the scene you know, as this as this infant, as this child, as a human being, he he brings mercy, he brings grace, but he also brings judgment. And Herod, in some form, recognizes that, or else he wouldn't have tried to kill him. And um, so, yeah, Jesus even says in one of the Gospels, he says, it's for judgment that I've come into this world, that, the, that those, who may, who, those who see become blind and those who are blind might see. So we, we, need, to, we need to not forget that, that part of it. Yeah, that's, that the, the day of the Lord is always twofold. It can either be for, for one person, it can either be a, a, a horrible time like the last judgment, or it can be the time of, of uh, redemption, complete, total redemption. Like uh, music is a good example. So like uh, Verity has a requiem, you know, this is my snob <laughs> coming out, uh, but you've probably heard it because there's this part to where it's the day of judgment and it's, it's, it's scary, scary music. Uh, but then I think about, you know, my West Kentucky gospel singers, when they start singing about that coming day, when no heartache shall come, you know, no more tears in your eyes. And so it really depends on which side uh, of the of the fence that you're on, whether the day of judgment is going to be one of, of joy or one of one of wrath. And so mm. that's the offer that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, yes. then the next, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you had talked about um, 
well, we had talked about the uh, the politics or whatnot, like our Christian culture, even our Christian culture, it, we, we are so, even in our worship services, we're trying to be relevant, whatever the word relevant means, we try to suit everything that we possibly can to entice people to come in. And I can't say that that's a complete vision of God. I think uh, the Holy Spirit um, lifts our eyes away from politics, lift our eyes away from materialism, lift our eyes from having to be relevant all the time. Uh, and in, in the Holy Spirit transforms us into people who seek the deeper things. It sets our minds on things above, as as, as I've said before. It, it Peace and joy and patience and these things become more important than power and influence on people and, and, and cars and houses and so on and so forth. And so... Um, that, yeah, that, well, I think in that, I think we've forgotten that everything we do in the worship service on Sunday morning makes a theological statement. Um, that's, you know, that's that's one of the things that I took from my pastor in public worship class at PAUSE was everything we do makes a theological statement about God. And I think we just go through the motions so much that we forget that. We we forget the purpose that of, of preachers wearing black Geneva robes was to hide them behind the preaching of the word so that people wouldn't see them. They would only hear God and hear God's word. Um, you know, it, the, the, the even the architecture of the church, you know, the Everything. the altar, yeah, the 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 altar on which the, the Lord's Supper sits is to point us to the sacraments. And so we need to understand that on Sunday morning, it's not about trying to attract people. It's simply, um, it's simply about worshiping God. You know, the worship service is a drama, but it's not a drama in which we we appease an audience of multiple people. It is a drama in which we try to please the audience of one, Jesus Christ. This is where this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when you receive this, I think that's what helps with that vision of life. Like if you're all caught up in the Holy Spirit, uh, you know what you're supposed to do. You, your life is to glorify God and enjoy Him in whatever capacity you can, right? It's not this listless uh, existence to where like, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I mean, you know, you have this purpose and, and, and God has put a flame in your life and, and, you, and you go on. Um, so then that leads to how uh, Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh in the New Testament seen first in Acts chapter two, as you said, right? So like uh, the Holy Spirit comes down on this group. But here's the thing about Acts chapter two, right? They were still just Jews. They were culturally mm. Jews. I mean, they weren't. None of the people in that upper room were, were Gentiles. None of them were. They were in Jerusalem so that they could celebrate everything. They might have had different languages, but for the most part, they still did everything Jewish, and they were mostly Jewish. But it was still, that was the, the Holy Spirit came upon them. From that point on, then, the, the, the disciples go out progressively from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 10, you have Peter preaching to the, to the Gentile centurion. And at the end of his sermon, he says, well, who, who can stop these people from being baptized? They've received the Holy Spirit just like us. And so you see this barrier in, in, in the church you see the fulfillment of the Joel prophecy that all flesh, not just the Jews, not just the, the cultural Jews, but just everybody uh, can receive the Holy Spirit, right? And, and it's a breakdown, and it's an amazing thing. Whereas I've thought about this a lot. Like the church gets hit because you'll hear things like the church is the most segregated place on Sunday mornings. 
but it's still the church collective and there's not really one continent and there's not one place pretty much on this world that you don't have some Christian ethic, which we share. Uh, that's an amazing thing that the Holy spirit has been poured out in the hearts of just about every single culture or place in the world. Uh, and we do have that commonality. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon on the church is where he said that the church is the dearest place on earth. And so, you know, whenever you gather on Sunday morning, you know, yeah, you're in a church building, but you are gathered with the church. You are gathered with the people of God. All times and all places, we would say. I mean, that's, that's, that's awesome. And then, and then, so the fulfillment then too is in, for like from Galatians, when, when Paul says there, there's no Jews, no Gentiles, no slave, nor free, male, nor female. What he, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the material stuff, the physical stuff ends when it comes to fellowship or when it comes to being accepted. It's not your skin color, your nationality, your language or whatnot. It's whether the Holy Spirit is indwelling you as if you're part of the, the kingdom of God. And so I think that's that's an amazing thing. Uh, and it can break barriers uh, if we stick to that. Um, I, I think that's the most ingenious thing about the church. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Absolutely. So then the fifth theme then, we'll, we'll go ahead. As you've kind of mentioned, Jesus, the offer, the whosoever will is, is the only condition is the whosoever will believe, <laughs> right? And, mm -hmm. and then that's carried over in the New Testament. So you see that theme in the Old Testament to where God said all flesh uh, can have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit if you call on my name, right? Mm -hmm. And so in, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ makes the relationship with God through the Holy Spirit possible. Believe in my name. It's the I am the vine, you are the branches in me. You got you can do anything. Without me, you're nothing. Right. And so hmm. um I think that's I think that's important. I think maybe in the New Testament, Jesus Christ also Instead of just that mere confession, I think with the command to pick up your cross and follow me or to love me above all things, you might push that, um, that the operation of the Holy Spirit is going to make you someone who submits your head, heart, and hands to, to following Christ, right? And you'll know the Holy Spirit's in you when you develop these fruits the, that bring you closer to Christ and form you uh, more into the image of Christ. Right. Uh, so that's that. Now the applying the scripture part, I didn't apply this very well. I mean, because it's kind of hard and I wish I could, except to say, um, once I got out of the full-time ministry, well, well, I say full-time, once I got out of the full-time pulpit and I started doing this job to where I could study and put together Bible studies, starting from Genesis to, to Revelation, I've noticed like one of the, the major theme of scripture is love God or not. Right. And then that is all throughout the Bible presented as a, as a two ways. Like in the Psalms, it's a tree planted by the water or you're a tree somewhere else. Right. You're either going to shrivel up and die or you're going to bear fruit in Proverbs. Mm -hmm. It's the way of wisdom or it's the way of folly uh, in, in the New Testament. It's walking by the spirit or walking by the flesh with Jesus. It's you're in me or you're out. Right. But mm -hmm. just like I didn't, I never noticed for the 20 years I'd studied scripture that depending on where you're at in the Bible, it's still the same thing. It's either 
there is a life, a full life, an abundant life, or there's no life. And there's right. ways to go. And, and I think that's what we see here. And I think one of the dangers is we get into this, whether we've been, you know, overexposed to legalistic preaching or what it is, we get into this mode where we think, well, all I have to do is believe and that, you know, I can just sit on my blessed assurance and wait for things to happen. But, but you know, your salvation is a is always a progressive move forward towards Jesus. You know, yes, you are justified by faith. And yes, I even believe you are sanctified by faith. But your your faith has works that come as a result of that, and right. the works are God working in you, and it's you know, yeah, it's fruit bearing, and it it manifests itself in the decisions that you make, and the choices that you make, and the way that you live your life, and uh, your life will flourish whenever you make choices and make decisions that uh, follow the direction of Jesus. So let me ask this. So part of one of the, the ending discussion question on this was, uh, what does it mean to live life by the spirit as opposed to life uh, by the flesh? What does it mean to put away the works of the flesh? And and so I know it's got to be more than just willpower. Like, right, you just don't mm-hmm. wake up today and be like, in my own power, I'm going to make sure I give to the poor. I'm going to care about people. Blah, blah. How do you then do it? How would you say, how do you live life by the spirit? Well, I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> if I- I think that's something we're all trying to figure out, but I think the best place to start is um, engaging in practices that um, engaging in spiritual disciplines and in practices that you know where you, where you're going to try to connect with God through prayer, through Bible reading. Um, you know, I'm not saying you have to be holed up in a in a monastery somewhere and always be reading and praying, uh, but you know. Do things in your life that are conducive to hearing God. Do things in your life that make you open to feeling a sense of uh, that God might want you to give some money to someone who's struggling. God might want you to uh, say something to some, say a word of encouragement to one of your coworkers who might be having a bad day. You know, be open to the unction of the Holy Spirit to do certain things, and you know, just um, I think. <laughs> I think one of the things that's important is to understand that we don't have to be super spiritual giants to be godly people. We can be people who are living our daily lives, doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. We can, we can love our wives. We can love our children. We can love our coworkers and be witnesses and examples that way. And um, I think I think what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say can be expressed best if you go and look up um, a theology of the ordinary by Julie Canlis. She kind of talks about in that brief, you know, fifty-page booklet about how we, through living our ordinary lives, we experience an extraordinary God. Yes. Um, I want to echo that. So what I came up, I I forgot where, who, what, but I had a course in class or read a book and and it said try softer like to live by the spirit means to try softer in the sense of your willpower is not going to get you very far but the more you develop your love for god the more the holy spirit develops your heart toward god the more the holy spirit develops your mind toward god and your hands toward god and so now while i don't like you you don't just become a monk but at the same time 
developing a love for God will affect you, your thoughts. And, and I know that because I'm married and the, the more I write, so, but when I first got married, I was a very me centered person, but over the years and me trying to please my wife and delve into her heart and, and, and vice versa, I've changed my behaviors to make her happy. And it's not yeah. because I'm trying to win her love. It's just that I, I want her to be happy. And she has done the same with me and, and I've become happy because she makes me happy. But um, I get where like marriage is a good, it's a, it's a really good example of, of how a relationship between you and God works. You, you fall in love with someone and you want to know deeper what, where, how deep does the love go and how, and so I, marriage marriage is good when it's good it's good <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's um i think that's what it means like I've, I've often thought like in order for me to be a better husband it's not simply willpower because i can do everything right and i've seen couples where there's no love and they try to do everything right but it's dead like it's mm -hmm. a dead relationship and then i've seen marriages where like like the guy's just a terrible human being, but man, he loves his wife and she loves him. <laughs> like, right? I think that's what people think when they look at me and my wife. <laughs> but I they, think that's the truth. There's a there's an element there to where, and and then you know there's there's got to be a love and something that kindles that. And then it, when you're when you're constantly kindling the fire, I think that transforms you. I think it really mm. does. Um, and and I guess when Paul says set your mind on things above, I've also known. Like uh, if, if, if you've ever struggled with addiction, uh, that's a thing that can just, your thoughts are toward one thing and affects everything of your life. And if you can get it to oh, yeah. when you're focusing on the right things too, it feeds good things to you. And that does help. And you're not necessarily trying for it to happen, especially if you're addicted. You're not trying to feed an addiction. It's right. just you're so set. Everything feeds to it. <laughs> so, yeah, Absolutely it's tough like that. So, but anyway, well, so I'm going to get that uh, book also on a little email list that you were just talking about. You said the theology of the ordinary. Yeah. A, th a theology of the ordinary by Julie Canlis. All right. I will get that on and I'll get that sent out to everybody. But, uh, but uh, thank you then for, for uh, being on here today. Uh, we'll do this again and it'll be you writing. And so you can explain to me what you were thinking and, and for everybody else. And so, Oh boy, that'll be a trip. It is. It's fun. It's fun. It's very hard. Uh, I do want to say for everybody who's listening, writing the encounter, you might think that it's just like writing a sermon or whatnot. It's not. It's hard. It's hard. Oh work. no. <laughs> it's hard work, and and uh, you obviously can't make everyone happy either. And so, uh, it was fun. I love doing it, and I look forward to doing it again. But I'm glad I don't have to do it for a good while. Right. It's it's a lot of work. But thank you, Logan, and we'll talk with you again next week. All right.